Welcome to Reproducing Grace, a podcast of Freedom Church Movement. So this morning I have with me on the show uh, Dr. Stephen Lewis. Dr. Lewis, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, thank you for asking, and I pray that you're doing as well. Yes, yes, I am. Thank you. Uh, can you give us a little uh, bit of information about your yourself and your ministry? Well, sort of an update from before, uh, probably about 18 years ago, Rocky Mountain Bible College and Seminary had called me to succeed the founding president, Jonathan Smith, who consequently has passed away since then. And while I was there in Denver, Colorado, we uh, added a full MA program and a THM program because we had, I had the right guys for the Greek and the Hebrew, which gave us that ability to do so. And so I really was blessed to be a part of a great team there. At 17 years of being there, which was last September, I stepped down as president and a new president was brought in, Dr. Christopher Cohn, and he and his group renamed the school Colorado Biblical University and since then has moved to a new building in Fort Morgan, Colorado. And I was just there last week, helped doing and teaching some courses there. So it's been a good move. It's part of a bigger group called Versity. I was trying to look at the new ways of which we can communicate and teach, not only just distance, but locally in conferences and all the rest. So it's been really good for that. And so uh, the school is coming along well, I think. Uh, We've got a good 20 or 30 faculty and students. They also have a new academy for K through 12, uh, which is called Colorado Biblical Academy. And so we're located in the same building there in Fort Morgan. Christopher Cohn, for many of that have not met him, he had been the president at Tyndale Seminary in Fort Worth, uh, succeeding that, the president that founded that school. And then he was down in San Diego. And most recently, he was about seven years at Calvary uh, University there in Kansas City, Missouri. So it's been a great job. It needed to go to somebody a little bit younger. So here's a young man in his 40s that's doing a great job. And so we've been blessed to be a part of that together. I'm now the president emeritus of Colorado Biblical University and being blessed to be a part of it in some way. You're also part of B-World, is that correct? Correct. Yes, I'm, uh, I work at B-World, which is Biblical Education by Extension, and I've been ministering with them in Myanmar and in the Middle East, uh, primarily in Jordan and other Arab-speaking countries, as well as in Africa, where I just completed three courses over three years, dealing with uh, 16 leaders representing 10 sub-Saharan countries in Africa. And in fact, this Saturday, we're going to be celebrating their graduation uh, with their degrees, and we're going to be Zooming that, unfortunately, because it's just hard to get into some of these countries back again because of the COVID pandemic crisis we have today. So we've already got it scheduled, and it's going to be Zoomed, and everybody's going to be wearing their regalia, and so it's going to be a real formal affair, uh, highlighting 11 years of work that's gone on in Uganda, centralized in Uganda for all these other countries as well. Of those 16 men, now they oversee in some way through multiplication of what we have within B-World, probably about 8,000 people, men and women throughout Africa as well. So I'm blessed to be a part of it. I also do theological review for their new courses. 
They've asked me to help do that. And I've been helping with the devotions on Thursdays for about five years as well. So my wife, Shan, she works at B World as uh, in human resources and does a great job of helping everybody be in compliance and all the things that we really dislike about ministry. But she does a great job with it. Well, great. The uh, graduation is is going to be quite a celebration. Uh, and what a great testimony to the school, the, the teaching that you've been doing and, and B-World's uh, ministry there in those locations. Yeah. Now, I'm also an adjunct with JETS, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. I've been teaching there probably for about 10 years, doing master's and doctoral level work. And this last uh, June, uh, just a few months ago, I did a course for their master's program on soteriology, uh, which was four hours a day, five days a week for three weeks through a translator and interpreter. So it's been a great long journey. Dr. Ahmad Shahada, the president, has been a good friend and colleague and even classmate from Dallas. So we've had a great time together and all the things that God has blessed us with in that part of the world. Excellent. I hear you have a new book in the works. Can you talk a little bit about well, it? Well, I've, I've been collect. I've been doing different teachings on a different subject over many years. Uh, this last time when I taught in the Middle East through Zoom, uh, I had put together my sort of a culmination of all my work on soteriology. And I did a history of soteriology down through the history of the church then I did a chapter or a section, if you will, dealing with the history of free grace through church history. And so uh, it's entitled Ad Fontes, which is Latin for to the fount, back to the resources, back to the originals. And it's Ad Fontes, a collection of essays concerning biblical soteriology of the New Testament. So it's in review. A publisher is asking to review it to see if they want to publish it. Uh, I try not to do self-publishing. I neither have the funds nor the inclination to put a lot of money into my own books as such. So uh, over the years, I've contributed to chapters of books and articles and such. And so this is sort of a culmination of all the work that I've done over the many years on the issue of salvation. I prayed and I would just ask people to pray about that it would find good favor and a good discussion as well. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds like it's going to be a great work. Um, Can you share with us a little bit uh, your thoughts on the importance of a free grace only church planning movement? Well, generally speaking, whenever a church is planted, it generally takes on the theology personality of the founders. I mean, we we may not think so, and we may think, well, and so when churches change hands, they sometimes change their theology based on the personalities or the theology of the incoming senior pastors. So in in another way of looking at it, when you found a church on a clear biblical basis of understanding the clear grace of God, and the freeness of it, you run a better chance of it succeeding in that same clarity for years to come, as opposed to coming in and attempting to change the direction of an existing church. It can be done in existing churches. I know of many examples, but I also have many failures of churches that have been succeeded in their pastorates by somebody who had a totally different theology than that that the church has held historically or what the previous pastor did. So 
the idea of church planting with a clear, definite biblical basis, not just a theological basis, I think makes a vast difference in impacting their world, their community, and those families so that they're very clear on it. I think of Ed Underwood when he succeeded there in at Church of the Open Door when he first came. There had been an interim pastor prior to him who had said all the right things about free grace, said all the right things. But when they brought him in and he was there a short while, he began to say, well, that's not really what I believe. And then it tore, it really was destructive. So if we can be honest up front, that we're, this, is what, this is what we hold to, and this is the biblical basis for it, not just the theological basis, I think we run a better chance of having it succeed long-term. So that's my real passion about church planting. If you start out with a clear message and you stick to that, and too many churches don't because they're afraid they're going to be left without a pastor and then take the, the first one or the last one they can possibly get and without examining the clarity of that message. And I believe that what we're doing here is setting a firm foundation and a good structure from which to build on for the rest of that life of, an, of a new emerging local assembly of believers holding to a free grace message. In the manual that I put together, uh, Reproducing Grace, Starting a Free Grace Movement in Your Region, in stage two of that book, uh, we look at the biblical concept of church planning teams. We draw out the, mm -hmm. the concept that we use the acronym IGSO. It's Intercessor, Gatherer, Shepherd, Other Giftings, and Elder. Um, could you just talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a healthy reason to have a team. There really is. And I think if one goes in and, and tries to gather people based on their personality or their attractiveness by people to whatever else it may be, it is exhausting, first of all. And But secondly, if you find like-minded men and women who hold to the same things and understanding the diversity of gifts within the body and putting a team together that's well-balanced in those things, because you need somebody with a shepherding heart. If you look at the, the equippers that are listed for us in Ephesians 4, most people would understand these as spiritual gifts, but they're not because they're to do the work of equipping until the saints that are doing the work of ministry attain the unity of the faith. So all of those pastors, teachers, evangelists, building on the foundation of prophets and apostles, make a balance. So when you go to a local assembly of believers, there needs to be somebody there that really does oversee the equipping of people to have a shepherd's heart. You need to have somebody that also is an equipper that helps people understand evangelism. You also need an equipper that shows people how to do good teaching. And what happens is, is that most churches settle for one of those three and then hire somebody else, or they will try to make that single person try to do all three or all five, as what we've been talking about with ours. So I really think that that divesting of equipping and the founding of a church becomes essential for what will go build a legacy for the, for the years to come. Now, what happens is you'll find in almost in any church today, if you uh, attended long enough, you will find that the senior pastor 
whatever term they want to use, will have one of those in a strong way. And they'll just sort of muddle through the other two. But if you have a team and you put together a team and you teach the biblical concept of a team, it makes all the difference. When Paul went about to find churches and to equip them as such, he usually went with a team. When he went back to see how they were doing, he may have been going by himself, but he had a whole team that went before him. There were others that had been along the way, and he attributed so much to the work of others, not just himself. So Lone Rangers, if all you've got, do it. I'm sure there weren't that many establishing churches within a prison ministry that Paul had at Rome, but he did it. But outside of that, unless if it can be avoided, don't do the single person thing because it will wear you out. Whereas if you go with a team and establish a team at the very beginning, I think the sustainability of that local church and assembly has a far better chance of success, especially if we recognize the diversity of of gifts, but also diversity of equippers. Under the leadership of elders, bishop, presbyters, the same function, if you will, from three different aspects for the plurality in the local church. Very good. Thank you. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about something that I talked about in last episode. I was explaining the first time that I was introduced to Free Grace, and a friend of mine mentioned that he thought that I was a believer probably much earlier than I thought. Um, I mentioned that what I knew about Jesus when I was younger was that he was the Son of God and that he died on the cross to open the gates. Um, can you can you just share your thoughts on that? You know, I I would say. Because we have used such difficult and different terminology down through the centuries, for almost two millennia now, it becomes very difficult. And people have argued, fought over, split over the same issues. Uh, I know of many groups today, even within the free grace movement, that have diverse opinions on that. And what I found somewhat odd is that if you have, let's say you have five people you're talking with, and they'll all be different in how they approach it or how they say it, but they almost all say, but there's one way you can't say it, and that's this. And so that seems to be more, or that seemed to, to unite more people than what the actual is. It's a common one that they dislike as opposed to a common way they would share it. So I would say that. For the most part, if you're a, a young man or a young woman or a young girl, a young boy, and you hear the message of life and it's presented clearly, I, I have had people tell me, well, I believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And I go, great. So what do you ultimately want out of this? What does forgiveness of sin actually give you? Well, I'm forgiven my sin. So what is that? What did you finally, when the final analysis, what are you going to end up with? Well, I'm going to be with God in heaven forever. Ah, so they may not have stated it in the way I would have been, I would rather have, but at the same time, I wouldn't say, you know, well, that's just wrong. A person can never be saved if they, if they believe that. What usually happens among all of us that do this is that we, we add other words to it. Well, if you only believe just that, well, you know, people tell me, I don't know what a person believed. So whenever I share with Avasa, 
I've been with people at a restaurant and one of my friends will say, ask the, the, the service person, male or female. So if you ever believe in Jesus Christ and if you ever known his death or his death and burial and resurrection and or, or they'll say, are you a Christian? Now, most service people, unless they're from certain parts of the world, would say, oh, sure, I'm a Christian, meaning I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Muslim. But and then if they don't answer it correctly, my friend would say, so how do you, and he, they begin to drill down on this idea of, well, a, do you go to church? And all these doings that they think need to be exhibited to verify that they truly are a believer. My approach and other colleagues of mine would be ask them if they're a believer in Jesus Christ and then share with them the clear message. And a way to do that in a non-threatening way is great. Can I show you a simple way you can share your faith with others? And then share it with them, even though they may never even heard that before, they now have heard it with an open mind rather than a defensive mind. So I found it easier to approach people that way. And then share with them the simple message, like a John 3.16 or wherever else we want to go with that. This is a simple message. And if we begin to say, so what do you really mean by the word belief? You know, what do you mean by the word this and this and this? So I find it the, the least offensive and the most productive to always ask them and then say, great, since you're a Christian, can I show you? And you'd want to share your faith, wouldn't you? Can I show you a simple, really simple way to bring others to saving that we can show the message of life, the message of everlasting life, the message of the gospel of what we call that. So I think that has been my. So when I talk to people, they say, well, my brother went forward when he was 12 and now he's in death row for murder. Is he a real Christian? How in the world would I know? Right. I don't know what I think some days. So to know what's in the heart and the minds of people is a presumption that gets us into more trouble, I would believe, rather than just explain the message simply. Even if it's just a short conversation in, in a restaurant with a, with a friend, with a family, with just anybody you meet, if they're open, share it. Now, if somebody wants to know uh, how they, if they ask, how can I know I have everlasting life? I would begin to say, go to the passages like in First John, the passages dealing with assurance, and the assurance always go back to not their actions, not their lifestyles, not even their consistency in those lifestyles, but their evidence should go back in whom did they believe and for what did they believe him for? So it becomes an easier question rather than to do analysis or a psychoanalysis of their sincerity. Was you really sincere? Yeah, I can't tell. So I, I think a simpler. So if somebody says, you know, they, I, I get this all the time. You know, I get somebody raised this way, was a bully, you know, said they were a Christian and they did these things. So if they're, if they're mature enough, I usually ask another question. That is, so what sins are there that a real Christian could never commit? You know, I usually get a long list. Trust me. But at the, at the end of that list, I would say, so according to the scriptures, there is no sin that we're not capable of doing or committing. 
So unless you have a category for Christians that are in living in sin, to still have, have had saving faith. So in other words, if you put a criteria for a lifestyle or a consistency as a basis of their reality in Christ, it's a fool's errand. I, I remember there was a, a, a very, very favorable speaker at a conference of men. And he said, men, if you even lust today, you can't be a Christian. Now, if every man there was honest, they'd all should have gulped at the same moment. But they didn't. They all took it as, boy, we better examine ourselves, make sure we're not doing that to make sure we're a real Christian. No, what you need to do is examine it and say, are there things or lifestyles or there sin in my life that I should deal with as a believer? You know, I go back to that first John passage. If I say I have no sin, I'm a liar. And if I say, well, I've never sinned, now you're calling God a liar. And I don't think he likes that. So I would rather try to stick with it and share with somebody a simple message of saving faith rather than to debate it. But the way I think I would start is rather than questioning their sincerity, questioning their lifestyle, just say, can I show you a real simple way you can share your faith? And I found that to be effective with children, adults, older adults. When you minister with children, you will discover even young, young children can understand the basics. But the outside of the basics, we're still trying to deal with who is it that God is both, Jesus is both God and man. I can't explain that. But I can tell you some of the great theologies that have attempted to it, we've attached great Greek philosophical construct terms to those things, like a hypostatic union. Tell me where that word is found in the scriptures anywhere. It's not there. But Jesus claims to be fully God and fully man. That's what the scriptures teach. So when you go to the biblical basis, I think we get more ahead, if you will. And I think the Holy Spirit uses that more consistently in the life of that person then it would be to continually drill down on making sure they have the correct lifestyle, they have the correct uh, attitude, that they've not sinned a certain number of years between each great sin, etc. Because when you get into that, you've, you've really fallen into the trap of Roman Catholicism from venial to mortal. And you, it depends on how wide you want to make that spance. The Bible doesn't talk about it that way. The Bible talks about life and death. When God told Adam the consequence of disobedience would be death, he didn't say the day you eat, you'll be a dirty, rotten sinner, of which he was, and we still are. He said you'll be dead. So what we've needed since then is life, everlasting life of which Jesus alone can give. Thanks for being with us today on this episode of Reproducing Grace. To learn more about how you can reproduce grace, check out our website at Freedom Church Movement. Dot O-R-G.